0: You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about our church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. If you would, uh, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 6, verse 45 through 52. If you do not have your Bibles, it will be behind me. And it says... Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass, them, pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought he was a ghost and cried out for they saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to first and foremost thank you for having me here today. I want to thank you for allowing me to stand here and preach the Lord's word. It is a great privilege, and the day, again, just started off beautifully with prayer. And I'm not one for long introductions, so we're just going to jump right into it. As we begin to dive into this text, I do think that it is still extremely important to first get a little background on Mark and his gospel. After all, it is easier to understand any passage uh, when we understand its literary context. The first thing that we should note about Mark is his general purpose for writing this book. This is seen in chapter 1, verse 1 of his gospel, which says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The phrase, Son of God, is the ultimate thing that Mark is pointing to. It is the thread that weaves itself from the beginning to the end. And this term to describe Jesus in itself must be understood correctly. Being the son of God was not to be understood as some sort of demigod, a human with divine parents. Jesus is not like Hercules. Son of God is also uh, not to be understood as being Israel itself, who is called God's firstborn son in Exodus 4.22. It is also not to be understood as referring to Christ as one of the angels uh, who are called sons of God in Job 1.6. It is also unlike ourselves who are called sons of God in Romans 8.14. Now, these things are not untrue. Israel is the firstborn son of God in the sense that they were the first nation to be called out from the world to be his people. The angels are sons of God by virtue of being created by him, and Christians have a special sense of being sons of God by his merciful act of adoption through Christ. But Mark, instead, has a specific and very profound use of the term here. Christ is not just a son of God, he is the son of God. And when he calls Christ the son of God, it is intended to show that he is God, In Mark, it is a title that conveys the full divine status of Jesus. For the Jews, this is a blasphemous position. How could a mere man claim to be God? Their conviction is so strong that they went to stone Jesus when he said in John 8, 58, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus claimed the name for God himself, the I Am. But they were unable to grasp that God came in the flesh, as was foretold by the prophets. For Gentiles, this claim of divinity is equally as baffling. Many already had the concept that there are sons of God. After all, there are many gods, and they have their offsprings. Also in the Roman Empire, it was held that Caesar himself was God, or a God, and it was required to give him worship. But godhood was for people of high caliber. Godhood was for emperors and kings and legends. A poor wanderer born in the Roman Empire's hicks of Galilee and the son of a mere carpenter was not what they had in mind for a God. God. Jesus as God, as the Son of God, is an insane proposition for both the Jews and the Gentiles. And it can be seen as insane today. There have been people in our time that still claim to be God. I remember my grandfather telling me of a a book that he read where three separate men in the same time all claimed to be Christ, the second coming and they were rightly placed in a mental hospital. This to say that people claiming to be God is seen as insanity, and it is insanity only if it's not true. And Mark strives to show us in his gospel that it is true for Christ. Jesus is the divine Son of God. But the question remains then, how does Mark do this? The way that Mark highlights this truth is less by the words of Christ and more by his actions. Mark is a fast-paced book that leads from one act of Christ to the next. This quickness is shown by Mark's unique usage of the word immediately. Mark uses this word over 36 times in his gospel, more than all three other gospel accounts combined He uses it twice in our text today. So Mark's gospel is action-packed. It moves from one scene to the next. It is the fast and furious version of the gospel, all to get to the next act of Christ. So what is the act of Christ in our text today? Now, I think it is helpful to first start just before our main text to the feeding of the five thousand. The reason for this is that we see in verse 52 that the disciples did not understand what Jesus was doing because they did not understand the lesson from the loaves. So verse 45 through 52 is intrinsically linked to verse 30 through 44. So what do we see in those verses? What we see, and this is going to be a summary, is that a large group of people tenaciously follows Jesus. He just finished a sermon, and he sought to leave and go to a desolate place. Uh, Verse 31 even says that they didn't have even enough time to eat. They have been so busy. So they seek to retreat on a boat, yet people continue to follow them. They continue to see Jesus and the disciples, and they go to meet him on the shore. And though Jesus was attempting to find a place of rest for him and his disciples, he sees the crowd and he has compassion for them. So he decides to sit and continue to teach them. And he teaches them late into the night. So late, in fact, that the disciples begin to be concerned that the people need to be sent away so that they can get food and that they can go to their own homes. But instead, Jesus instructs the disciples to feed them. They gather loaves, and they gather fish, and Christ performs a miracle. He multiplies the bread and the fish so that not only are the people fed, but there are leftovers. And I know that this is an often spoken of text, and I am sure many of you have heard this story before. But let's not miss what just happened here because of our familiarity. Christ creates. He does not split the fish and bread into tiny pieces so at least everyone could have some. I mean, with 5,000 people, this would be nothing but crumbs for them. No, he creates. He creates and forms even more fish and even more bread. And a creation like this is an exclusive act of God. No one else in all the Bible creates out of nothing, yet Christ does so here. So what is Mark showing us? It should be obvious. Christ is God. Jesus' divinity is attested to by his sovereign act of creation, creation out of nothing. And so... This story serves as the backdrop for our text today, verses 45 through 52. But even before we move on to the next miracle that Christ performs, there is an objection that people have raised that needs to be addressed. I am making the claim that Jesus' miracles here attest to the fact that he is God and that he is the Son of God. But many will say that miracles cannot happen and they will point to things such as the sciences. Now, for some of you, uh, physics is a distant memory and maybe even a happily forgotten one. But unless you are an engineer like Rob or you're strange like Ryan and I, we still like it. So as a refresher course, I'd like to go over something. One of the first things that I learned in physics is the law of conservation of mass. It simply states that mass cannot be created nor destroyed. All this means is that an object cannot come out of nothing. Let's say cake. And it also cannot be destroyed. You could set a cake on fire. You could blow it up. You could eat it, or you could cut it into billions and billions of pieces. But it would never be fully destroyed. It would either be transformed into energy, such as when we eat it, or it would just get super, super small it also means that cake cannot come out of nothing. No matter how much I wish it to be so, I cannot put an empty pan into the oven and expect a full cake to appear. So Jesus, they would say then, could not have made the fish and bread as it violates this most basic principle of the universe. There are a few things that I have to say to this. First and foremost, it has to be admitted by the skeptic that science is inherently about the natural world. Science is the study of natural phenomena. Miracles are not natural. They are supernatural, by definition. This means that they stand outside the bounds of what science can study. If it stands outside the bounds of what science can study, then it cannot confirm nor can it deny the existence of miracles. It has to be silent on the issue. The second thing to mention is that some will say that they can't believe in something unless it is proven scientifically. Unless it can be tested, they might say, I cannot believe it. If this is the standard, then you need to throw out a lot more than just belief in miracles. One example is the existence of morals and morality. They do not exist physically. They cannot be brought into a lab and tested. They can be applied, and many people do, but they cannot be proven using scientific methods. They must rest on something else. The last thing that needs to be said about miracles is that God is the one who created the laws of science. He created the law of conservation of mass. And if he created it, then he has power over it. He is not bound by the things that he creates, he rules them. It is illogical and inconsistent to think that God must submit to that which he rules. It's passages like Romans 9 that show this principle that God is like a potter and he forms the clay and he can do with it as he sees fit. He can use it for his intended purposes or he can smash the pot. It is up to him. And this is why these miracles vindicate the claim that Jesus is God. Only the one who creates the rules has the power over them. With all of this said, it is time to get to our text proper, to the next miracle of Christ. And as the story of the feeding of the 5,000 ends, Mark uses his trademark word in verse 45. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go after him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. So Christ creates... He feeds 5,000, and now we sprint to the next act of Christ. He sends off the 12 ahead of him, he dismisses the crowd, and he heads up to the mountain to pray. This, and this time of prayer should not be overlooked. If there is any small break that Mark gives us in his sprint, it is right here. And it's important to note that in the Gospel of Mark, there's actually only three times that Jesus, is, Jesus prays. It is here, in Mark one thirty five, before he preaches in Galilee, and in Mark 14.35-39, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And each time, Jesus is isolated away from his disciples. Note, the disciples are in the water, and he is alone on land, in this case. It is usually at night, and according to one commentator, it is at a time that the disciples fail to recognize who Jesus is. They have failed to see that Jesus was the sovereign God right in front of them. Luckily, Jesus does not leave them there. He sees them from the mountain. And in our text, he looks down from the mountain, and he sees them struggling against the wind, and he moves to take action. He continues to show himself to the disciples. And it states, at the fourth watch of the night, around three, this is around 3 to 6 a.m., Jesus appears to them on the water. In verse 48, it states that Jesus meant to pass the disciples by. This phrase is intriguing to say the least, as there is no real consensus on what exactly is meant by the fact that Jesus was passing them by. It seems clear at the very least that Jesus did not intend to ignore them and wasn't trying to simply stroll on past heedless of their plights. After all, he looked down and saw them. That's why he went And if he did not want to be seen, he is God. So he wouldn't be seen. So it is clear that he wanted the disciples to see him. But why? One commentator sees this interaction as placing the disciples in a position where they cry out to Christ for help. But I do not see that this is the case here. After all, They don't cry out for help. They cry out in fear. They think that Jesus is a ghost. Verses 49 and part of 50. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. If Jesus passing them by was for the purpose of them crying out for help, then all they get is an F a failing grade. They did not cry for help. They cried in fear. Instead, I see, and another commentator sees, that this act only furthers the main points that Mark is trying to make, Jesus, the divine son of God. The phrase passed by is an extremely important phrase, both here and somewhere else. This phrase was used to describe God and his glory as he passed by Moses. So here, the fullness of deity in the flesh from Colossians 2.9. Jesus is passing by the disciples. This is yet another declaration of who Christ is. God. This is only strengthened by the fact that Christ says, after the disciples are fearful... Fear not, it is I. The phrase it is I is in the Greek, ego me. And ego me is important because it is the name of God I am in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Ego me is the same phrase used of Jesus in John 8 58, mentioned before. Before Abraham was, I am. And is the exact same phrase used here. This is no coincidence. It is as if Mark is shouting with a megaphone that Christ is God. And Mark does not stop shouting. After Jesus assures them to not fear, he steps into the boat and another miracle happens. The winds and the waves stop. The storm ceases. This is not the first time that he has done this either. If we remember, he calmed the storm while on the boat in Matthew 8. We see the disciples in a very similar state. They are in a storm. They are distressed, and they say to the sleeping Jesus, Lord, save us. We are going to drown. And there, too, we see a lack of faith. But then Jesus commanded the storm to cease. Here, Jesus shows that he didn't even have to do that. His mere presence, a thoughtless command, can calm a storm. And in the last half of verse 51, we see that the disciples were astonished by this. Now something to take note here, though, is that their astonishment was not due to reverence. They were not amazed because they recognized him as God. No, they were amazed because they were surprised. They were surprised that Jesus had such power. And they were surprised because their hearts were hardened. Verse 52. What? The disciples, the ones who walked with Jesus day in and day out had hardened hearts? That is usually the state of Jesus' enemies not his closest friends. And because their hearts were hardened, they missed the point of all that Jesus has been doing up to this point. They missed that Jesus just created earlier in the night food out of nothing. They did not recognize that God in the flesh was passing by them on the water. They did not hear the name of God when Jesus said, It is I. They could not connect the dots that who was standing before them was the one and only sovereign God who can do all things. We might take a step back then and think, these guys are stupid. They're either stupid or very forgetful. And there are two things that we need to keep in mind before we place such a harsh judgment on these men. One is that we have the great benefit of hindsight. As the saying goes, hindsight's 20 We know what's at the end of the Gospels. We have the full revelation of God at our fingertips in either the form of a book or an app on our phone. The disciples, on the other hand, are in the middle of this revelation. Though, though the miracle of the 5,000 was just hours before, these men we're busy fighting the sea after a long day, not having food. It is somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. after all. So, there, these are some good things to keep in mind before we start judging the disciples so harshly. And there's more. How often do we as Christians forget the power of Christ? How often do we let fear grip our hearts and doubt our future? We forget who is in control. We forget that God is still sovereign. We forget that he still does do miracles today. We have heard of miracles happening, like healing abroad. And just like the disciples in the boat, who are consumed by their own tasks, they forget who God is. And like them, we get surprised by miracles. I mean, if I am honest with myself and my own heart, when I hear of miracles elsewhere, sometimes my heart is hardened. And it tends to jump to the conclusion that it either did not happen or it happened by some other means than the power of God. But this cannot be the case. We need to trust in his sovereignty That is what Mark is showing us here. He is showing Jesus, the Divine Son, sovereign over creation. And that, of course, brings up the question what about when we ask for miracles and they don't happen? If Christ can create out of nothing, if he can walk on water, if he is the I am, why, why are the miracles we ask for sometimes not answered? A quick story. When I was 10 years old, the hardest period of my life started. My mother, a few days before Christmas, while we were hanging up some ornaments on the tree, looks at me, and tells me that she's an alcoholic. But she says she's getting better and doesn't want me to worry about it. And at 10 years old, of course, I believed her wholeheartedly. As far as I could understand, there was something wrong with my mom. She was sick, but she was getting better. But this, this is not the case. She continued to drink. She became horribly sick. Uh, because of the alcohol was destroying her body, along with smoking. And over two years, she was in and out of multiple rehab centers, usually kicked out for lapsing. And one day she would say that she wants to get better for us kids because she loves us, and I wholeheartedly believe that is true. Yet another day, she would say that she can't get better because me and my older brother were not supportive enough. And life got hard enough and my guilt weighed on me so much that at the age of 12 after being dropped off by my dad i called him up again to come and pick me up so i could move in with him it was something we had been discussing for a year at that point my mom just wasn't stable or healthy enough to really take care of me now fast forward through four years of on and off visitation with my mother and she was on her deathbed she had continued to spiral downward While I was with my dad, and now she laid in the hospital. The drinking and also her smoking were going to take her. And I prayed. I wasn't truly a Christian at this point, but I reached out to the only one I knew could truly help her, and I prayed to God that somehow He would save her. I prayed for her alcoholism to be cured. I prayed that her liver and her lungs would be healed. I prayed for a miracle. I believed at that moment, like text, like Mark 6, that Christ is sovereign, that he works miracles, and that he could save her. But one day while I was at school, a counselor pulled me aside in the hall and told me that they had gotten a call that she had passed. My prayer for a miracle was left unanswered. Well, really, the answer was no. And I tell you this, Because that's not really the end of that story. You see, this was one of the turning points in my life. I could not bear my mother's death on my own strength. I needed someone else that I could throw myself onto. And it is through this hardship that I began to get drawn by God. For only he could provide comfort. It is only in his sovereignty that I can rest. If Jesus is not sovereign, like Mark is showing, then all that I had was pointless pain and pointless suffering. But no, instead God used this hardship in my life, in his sovereignty, to give me the greatest miracle I could have asked for. Salvation. And salvation is the greatest miracle. As the great English preacher Charles Spurgeon said, Is not the gospel its own sign and wonder? Is not this the miracle of miracles? That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. Surely that precious word, whosoever will, let him come and take the waters of life freely. And that solemn promise, him that cometh unto me, I will no wise cast out are better than signs and wonders. It may not have seemed right at the time, but God did not grant my request for a miracle because he was working something greater than what I could ask for. Unanswered prayer is not a sign that Jesus is not sovereign over your situation. It is not a sign that he cannot work miracles. He can, he could, but instead of saving my mom's life, he saved my soul so that I could be with her and with him. We must take heart in Christ and his miracles, just as he commands in verse 50. We must fully trust in his power and in his sovereignty and who he is. We must remember in our time of struggles, of pain, and hardship that he is faithful and compassionate, just like what we prayed today. As we can take re- and we can take refuge in a passage like Romans 8.28, which states, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. So again, I say to you, I plead with you, Just as Jesus says in verse 50, take heart, Christians. Take your sins, repent of them, turn to Christ, have faith in him. Go to the cross where we can have comfort. Because Christ is not some mere carpenter in the land of Israel. He is not some great moral teacher like Mother Teresa, Gandhi, or Martin Luther King Jr., No, he is the sovereign God. He is the one who creates out of nothing. He is the one who walks on water. He's the one that passes by his disciples. He is the one who says that he is the I am. He is the one who can calm the storm. He is the one who died for his people's sins. He is the one who was resurrected from the dead. And he was the one who was raised up to the right hand of the Father. He is the one who sits on the throne. He is sovereign now and forever. He is the Lord of lords. He is the King of kings. So take heart. Have faith. And rest. Rest in his loving embrace. Please.